Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Clio Barnard, a writer and director whose films include the brilliant hybrid documentary The Arbor and the quietly devastating drama The Selfish Giant. Her latest, Dark River, stars Ruth Wilson and Mark Stanley as siblings trying to escape their dead father's shadow. It premiered in the platform section at TIFF last year, which is when we sat down for this very brief recording, and it's just arrived on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital in North America. Clio picked Performance, the landmark 1970 collaboration between Donald Camel and Nicholas Rogue that pairs James Fox and Mick Jagger for a drama about a gangster hiding out at the home of a burnt-out rock star and the transference that ensues once they're locked in the same space with each other. There's other stuff going on, some of it involving Anita Pallenberg, Michelle Breton, and a bag of shrooms, but mostly it's about the two leads and how they become one. This is someone else's movie. I was 14 when I watched it, and I'd never seen anything like it before in my life. Mm. I wasn't really meant to be watching it. <laughs> um, I, was, I actually really liked the Rolling, the Rolling Stones when I was that age. You know, my um, dad had a lot of those the albums, and I, I, and I sort of listened to them a lot, and I'd noticed in the sort of TV schedule that there was this film that had Mick Jagger in it. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of sneaked this, um, had this little black and white portable TV and I sneaked it up to my room and my um, my dad and my stepmom had some friend, friends over or whatever. So, and I watched it, but I wasn't meant to be watching it. So with the volume at kind of one, <laughs> and so I had to be really close to the television with it like that <laughs> to be able to hear um, and you, I know it's not black and white, but I watched it in black and white, you know, in my bedroom at that age, and it, it blew my mind. <laughs> and I guess, you know, every films that I'd watched, I mean, we, I kind of lived in quite a kind of isolated, um, far away place, so we weren't that close to cinemas. So a lot of my, uh, the films that I was watching were actually watched on, I watched on TV. Um, and... I just had never seen anything like it. So especially the bit where you go inside Mick Jagger's head. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, it was, I just thought it was extraordinary. I didn't really understand what I was watching. Um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. It's sort of the best way to experience it, really. Like an artifact or some sort of forbidden piece yeah. of culture that I can't believe. That I'm, you know, God bless the UK for putting things on television. Yeah. Um, but every now and then I'll hear a story like this where someone found something that they just shouldn't have seen mm. and some part of them knew they shouldn't be watching it mm. which just pulled them in mm. um, Kelly McCormick has a story about watching The Phantom of the Paradise uh, in, a, in a family cottage uh, to get away from an uncomfortable family situation and just watch this with her brother and it's again she was nine years old it's not the kind of thing you're supposed to see this yeah. Brandon Palma glam rock opera from the 70s and the other film that was screening all the time was Zardoz which, again, shouldn't be on television, has nudity and all sorts of bizarre things, and small children don't understand it. So mm. you just you want to understand it more. Mm. And performance, um, which, you know, when the Blu-ray came out a couple of years ago, I got, an, I got a chance to see it in the best condition I'd ever seen mm. it. I've never seen it theatrically. But it is 
so odd and so singular. And yeah, I can imagine not comprehending some of it mm. and being drawn in further because you want to. It's not, mm. it's not repellent in any way, but it is oblique and weird and impenetrable, mm-hmm. even though it's all about penetration. It's, yeah. a, it's a really strange film, and I'm so glad you picked it. No one's, no one's chosen a rogue film yet, or Donald Kamel, and they're both such interesting filmmakers. And again, every time I think about performance, I don't think about Rogue for some reason, even though it's completely within his filmography. I attribute it entirely to, to Kamel because he was so interested in, in celebrity and fame and, and that sort of aspect of it. But yeah, I'm sorry, I just monologued at you. Um, have you how often do you revisit it, or do you? Um, well, I... I mean, I don't necessarily revisit it that often. And, you know, I'm slightly worried because I haven't seen it for a long time. Um, and, and I'd have loved to have watched it again before. But um, but I think one I do really love Nick Rogue, especially from that, but his early films, like I, the opening of Walkabout mm-hmm. is like nothing else. I just think it's incredible. The, the, the opening sequence, um, I think the way he uses editing and the way he uses sound... Um, is amazing, uh, so as and the way he tells story y- using kind of montage and the opening of um, Don't Look Now, I think is extraordinary. I was going to say that film is again. You can't imagine someone made it. It feels like it was just dropped off somewhere, fully formed. It's mm-hmm. such a a coherent, complete masterwork. And Walkabout too, I think. I mean, they're just so odd that. And I keep thinking about how difficult it was to do optical effects back then and how, how sound wasn't sound as we know it. It was tapes and scratchy noises and, and all sorts of um, effortful things. And to be making these movies like that at that time when everybody else was just sort of flailing around with handheld for the first time, it, it, it's so odd and strange and, and potent. His films mm-hmm. still feel like they don't belong in this world, like they're portals. Mm-hmm. And yeah performance is another one yeah the portal is into Mick Jagger's head which is kind of it's so weird but he um I kind of wonder whether um that combination of Roeg and Camel was really they really did something for each other if you see Mm -hmm. what I mean because um I think that because I met Nick Roeg actually because he was I, I briefly went to the and if the National Film and Television School, um, nice. just for a year to kind of, um, because I, I wanted experience of working with actors, because I'm from a visual arts background, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have experience, and I was given a mentor, and I asked for him, and um, we only actually met once, but we talked about performance, and I, I got the impression that he, that combination was kind of, Nick Roeg was this kind of slightly geeky technical guy mm. and that Camel was the kind of out there wild <laughs> kind of uncontainable uh, crazy guy and that 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 combination I think is what was what gives you performance because you know performance has got story it's yes. got um, it's you know it's a gangster movie but it's just it's so kind of um, off the register of of um, conventionality or whatever you yeah, know it's yeah. kind of um, I mean, it abandons narrative at one point to, it just, could, to just exist yeah yeah 
but never abandons it completely. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of um, so there's a tension in it that I re- that I really love yeah. um, be- between those between those two things. So it you know it feels um, it doesn't feel kind of indulgently crazy for the sake of it. it right. It's co- there's a coherence to it that I also really you know that I really love. Yeah. So, yeah. I remember trying to describe it to somebody when the Blu-ray came out because it just suddenly was back and I was so excited that it was going to be available. Um, and I, all, the only thing I could say was it's basically if someone in Swinging London decided to remake Persona but didn't know what they were doing and made it about a Cray brother meeting a Rolling Stone because mm-hmm. there, there's almost no... I mean, Jagger is giving a performance. He's not playing the Mick Jagger that we thought mm-hmm. we knew. But then there's also the, you know, the, the Rolling Stones started out as sort of very clean lads, right? I mean, the, their original look was, was mm-hmm. nowhere near what they became. And so he's obviously really good at steering his own public persona and his public presentation and then whatever James Fox is doing. Or, yeah. And then James Fox is playing someone who is a sociopath. I mean, just a, a very dangerous live wire person who is starting to discover emotional pulls that he didn't know he was capable of. So you have this internal psychological investigation going on, and you also have the movie itself, which is like a spinning top of, mm-hmm. of excess, but yes, with a control in the center, with something that is pulling everyone in the same, into the same center. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, it all just does what it does. It's amazing about identity in that way, because, because Fox becomes Jagger, doesn't he? And, mm-hmm. and you're aware of Jagger as a, playing somebody who isn't quite him. So it's a kind of, yeah, there's a strange... It's a strange fictional version of somebody that you know is real. Yeah. And then the and other... someone you think you know. Someone like, that you someone think you know. Someone you think you know anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's kind of... So, I guess, thinking about it now, in a way, as a 14-year-old girl, that's pretty weird <laughs> in terms of, yeah, identity. And also, you know, basically, I really fancied him. That's why I wanted to watch it. Sure. So, it was... That was... You know, and and it's kind of it's really interesting around sort of gender fluidity and mm-hmm. about you know it's very sexually it's really free and um, so yeah I mean it, you, as you can imagine at that age it had a, a huge impact so yeah yeah did it send you in a uh, direction did you start looking for other things like it or is it so um, singular I don't think so I mean I it meant that I looked sought out other Nick Rogue films. Mm. I didn't actually seek out Camel films, or I did, but they were a bit... They were almost like... I was more interested in Rogue, really. Right. Um, but I suppose... One of, the, one of the things that has been fairly consistent, I suppose, in, my, in terms of my interest in my work, is, some, is the relationship between um, what's in the real world and how we... Um, might transform it, I suppose. Maybe that's a bit vague in general because that's true of all film. <laughs> no, I don't see what you mean. Yeah. Um, it's more about asserting yourself over the world that you live in. Or it's about... Um, so, in like in the Arbor, there's very clearly a relationship between this real stuff, which is the audio, which I recorded with the, these interviews and then constructed the, the visuals around that audio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with The Selfish Giant, you know, I took a... A, a fairy story, um, but applied it to a very real situation. Um, 
And I suppose perhaps in Dark River, it's to, partly to do with what's in, in her imagination, but she'd rather it wasn't. Right. But she, she doesn't really have any control over when it intrudes into her uh, kind of present. But there's... Um, and, and maybe with um, performance, there's something about um, the real, this real person, Mick Jagger, mm-hmm. who's obviously some kind of rock star construction, but then becoming this other kind of weird version of himself, which is actually quite intimate, um, and an, an experience of him that I'm expecting to be the real him, but it isn't. Right. And then this peculiar thing that happens in the film where this other man kind of becomes him. So um, th- th- it, there's, there's lots of complicated layers there. Mm. Yeah. And Rogue got that better than almost any other filmmaker. I mean, look at the man who fell to earth, right? I mean, he's, he's able to use a persona and draw us in and and use it as a cheat because in both cases he's using them as a sort of a fake out because the thing that they're portraying is not the thing that we want them to be yeah so it pulls us in even closer because you're hoping you get a glimpse of the real person underneath the persona but you see another character and it creates an argument in a strange way i don't even know how to explain it but it's like it's like the little girl in don't look now who is no little girl you just spend the entire movie wanting something to be resolving into mm-hmm. the thing that you think it is and then it just isn't and walkabout does it with motivation instead of with characters but uh he's such a his body of work is so fascinating i mean, mm-hmm. uh i'm always there's so much more to go into than we have time for always always mm-hmm. always with with these movies but um performance is still because of the collaboration which is also sort of an argument that the two talents are having mm-hmm. which becomes the conversation of the two characters in the film it, it just it's this hall of mirrors unlike anything else he ever did mm-hmm. and and camel i'm mispronouncing his name all this time uh is again an odd talent that shouldn't have been compatible with rogue and i'd love to know how the development worked i mean did they start with just rogue as cinematographer and realize he was having more impact on it did he ever speak about it did you get to ask him yeah, I did. I think he... I remember him showing me a photograph of him when he was young with headphones on, a kind of... Um, I think he was recording the sound. I think, yeah, he was kind of more of the kind of technical person, but then... Um, this may, I, I, may be, I may be completely wrong about this, not like factually incorrect, but uh, but it, I got the impression that he was the one who was kind of shaping it and reining it in, and mm-hmm. Camel was the one who was kind of ramping it up. And right. um, I mean, I suppose the other thing in that film is the relationship between Anita Pallenberg and um, and Mick Jagger, and that that you know they that was there obviously was a real kind of menage a trois going on in some way between, with with Richards Richard, and yes, yeah. Anita Pallenberg and and Jagger. You know that was. So there's some kind of uh, version of what the reality was that's being seen through some really weird kind of fucked up prism. Yes. You know, that's, um, yeah, so. Yeah, well, none of which I understood at that age, you right. know. But how great to be exposed to it. I mean, it's yeah. almost like the thing that gives you superpowers. It just, yeah. You don't fully understand it, but it transforms you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, the other, I mean, I don't know, how interesting this is or not, but the other thing was when I was sort of uh, 12, 13, um, people used to tell me all the time that I looked like him, 
which is quite confusing when you're a girl of that age. Um, and um, and yeah, so there's so there's and I suppose perhaps in that sort of teenage narcissistic way, that's why I was obsessed with him. Like, why are people saying I look like this guy? And um, anyway, that I think there's something about gender in there that, and the fluidity of, of, of that because he's quite feminine in it. Mm-hmm. So there's some. So I think that was just also mind blowing. There were many many things in it that at that um, age were, were mind-blowing. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm glad the mind, your mind was blown because it <laughs> resulted in some really interesting art. Uh, and that's, that brings us to the final question, which is, you know, if, what, if anything, have you borrowed or incorporated into your own creative DNA or even just stolen from performance? I was trying to figure this out for myself. I can't think of much. No, I don't think there's anything obvious. And I, I think perhaps just in talking about it, it's about... You know, in a way, in some ways, the Arbor is partly about, is about performance. Mm -hmm. In some ways, about how we tell stories about our own lives or or we might perform a story. Mm -hmm. So Lorraine's story and Lisa's story or or version of of the same things that happen so so I don't know if you remember but the opening of the film they're both talking about a fire in a bedroom yes. with the children sure. and they both have completely different versions of that story so for one it's a it's it's about neglect and for the other it's a funny story mm-hmm. um, uh, and obviously it must have had a massive kind of visual and kind of sensorial uh, impact on them um, but but they've interpreted that experience in complete and internalised that experience in completely different ways, and um, and you know what Andrea Dunbar was doing as a playwright was kind of um, retelling. It was a retelling of a true story, uh, and so there's some kind of transformation that goes on in that retelling. And I suppose the thing with performance that was so weird. For I found was so weird for me at that age was who is that person are they real or are they not real are they fictional Uh, but it's sort of him but it isn't you know so I think perhaps although I never really thought of this before or kind of articulated this before perhaps those those layers of performance and the way we might perform ourselves or or perform versions of our of our own story Mm -hmm. um perhaps there's some kind of connection there oh that's why i do the show i'm here to help (laughs) thank you thank you my thanks to clio barnard whose latest feature dark river is now available for rental and purchase on itunes and google play there's also a uk blu-ray and dvd from aerofilms and u.s editions from filmrise thanks also to susan norgett she knows what she did you can find clio on twitter at clio barnard all one word And you can find performance on Blu-ray from Warner Archive and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. Just too darn loud.